Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, my co-host Joe Stewart and I speak with inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. I've always had some level of confusion around spirituality or religion. My Caucasian dad once said to me, when you die, you go six feet under and that's it. My mother's side of the family, the Māori side of the family, are strict Catholics, so my exposure to spirituality growing up was what I felt was a strange blend of Christianity sprinkled with Māori cultural elements. It didn't really feel authentic to me. Later on in life, when I discovered yoga, it filled a gap I'd been feeling in that aspect of my life, but as time goes on, issues of cultural appropriation spring up and sometimes I do wonder whether it's right of me to be sharing something from a culture that isn't really my own. Recently, thanks to a friend on Facebook, I was alerted to a wonderful book called Infinite Threads, 100 Indigenous Māori Insights from Old Māori Manuscripts. It's a book based on manuscripts written by Māori tohunga, or sages, around 200 years ago when they realised that their traditions were being destroyed. It's a wonderfully written book and contains descriptions of practices that to me were very reminiscent of mindfulness and yogic practices, but for me personally it has a real power and authenticity that I can relate to. The author is Mariko B. Ryan, at least that's her pen name, and that just added to the intrigue. Joe and I both loved the book, so we decided to reach out to her, and fortunately, she agreed to speak with us. Before we get started, though, I wanted to quickly mention that I'll be presenting as part of a panel on yoga therapy across diverse communities during Global Yoga Therapy Day. This is along with Marsha Banks Harold, Julie Clark, and Mark Workman. The presentation will be at 8am Australian Eastern Standard Time on Friday, August the 14th. Just go to globalyogatherapyday.com for more details and I'll leave a link in our show notes. This episode was brought to you by our sponsor, Yoga Australia. Registering teachers and training courses to ensure that everyone in Australia has access to quality yoga teachers. Alright, let's get into our conversation with Mariko B. Ryan. I was wondering if you could just start by giving us a little bit of your background and maybe tell us about where you grew up. Sure. Thank you for having me, both of you. If I may start with something slightly different and then kind of morph into your question, it feels right at this point, knowing that you're going to have Australian listeners and possibly some New Zealand listeners listeners, and Māori listeners who live in Australia to greet them in our traditional way. So if you don't mind, I'd like to do that and then go into your question. Oh, please. Yeah. So iti tua tahi, anei rā te mihi aroha ki a koutou katoa. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Anei rā tēnei e tūana i tēnei wā, te uri nō te rarawa, nō tai toke rau. So I've just greeted them and let them know who I am, tribally speaking, that I'm from the northern iwi of Te Rarawa in, what we, in the region that we call Taitukiro. So I have placed myself now in a location um, for your listeners. So thank you for that. Where did I grow up? Now this, this will take me out of my tribal area. I grew up in Auckland. I was a child of parents and grandparents who had been part of the urbanisation process that occurred during the 50s and 60s. So the government made some economic policy decisions, which meant that many of my relations had to leave their tribal areas to find work. Um, I'm a child of those generations, brought up in Auckland and left Auckland for several years to live in other places in New Zealand as well, which I think was a a very positive thing to do, to get out of a a city like this and experience the regions. They were kind of pivotal years because they caused mass cultural disconnection and they enabled the government to grab huge tracts of land, uh, making it impossible for many to ever return. And so my family and my upbringing was part of that impact where we could go what we call home to our tribal lands but we no longer had land there so we couldn't return to live and so it's 
so that whole part of my life now I look at it in terms of what historical period did I grow up in uh, what was my experience during that time how did it impact me in terms of going forward as a young Māori girl and then woman into this world and what have I been able to extract from the things that we'd lost by being away from our land what have I gained so they were they were really interesting and I've always been curious in my growing up years around my Māori side but we were really fortunate as well because my father and grandmother who lived close by maintained connections very strongly with our tribal areas so we traveled back and forth as a child we traveled back and forth to our tribal lands constantly I remember vividly it would take us more than 12 hours driving to get what is now about a five-hour drive and the roads were pretty rough but it gave me a really sound connection to my roots and we didn't become strangers to our tribal land and to our identity so in that respect we were very fortunate that wasn't the case for many of my relations who lived in different areas around the country and many moved over to Australia and many have been unable to reconnect. Yes, so that's that's that question. Nice, beautiful. And so sounds like it was a real priority and a real conscious choice for your family that even though they might have been physically moving away from these tribal lands, they really wanted to maintain that connection and as a white Australian girl I'm really I'd love to hear more about like what that looked like in your family life. It looks different now than it did when I was a child so when I was a child I remember my my father my my parents and his relations attending what what we called land meetings in Auckland so we're in a very politically charged time so they were very conscious of the bureaucratic cogs and wheels that had been put in place to extract land off them and they had to fight a both a bureaucratic and a court system in order to hold on to land so there were several land meetings I recall as a child where people would get together and figure out how they were going to respond to a very complicated legal system that was biased against them. And so I remember very much being a part of that. And and although I was more likely to be outside playing with the other children, I do recall many times sitting inside the room as well and listening to what was being said and also hearing our native speakers switching languages constantly throughout the conversation, which I also do in the book. <laughs> and it, it's a kind of a, a reflection of my memories of how the language switching was just so fluid. And so my upbringing was embedded, I guess, with that cultural layer, which I didn't think was anything unusual, but I realise now was a gift. And as time went on and that generation has passed, there was definitely a depletion. There was a huge loss with that generation because there were so many native speakers and there was so much context and knowledge that left with them that will never be recovered. And I didn't realise how much until I got a little older, I guess, and in the process of talking to some of the elders for this book, some of those things started to come out and while I was jogging their memories, they were jogging mine as well. And it's just, it was just so rich and complex and simple at the same time. So that part of my upbringing, I realise now, was a foundation. And it was such a privilege to have been able to be, have, have that part of my younger years with those people and in those conversations and in those meetings. Beautiful. And I, I guess there was a lot of, you could say, Indigenous spirituality in, in your upbringing. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, although we're using modern, te- modern terminology. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and I, I was thinking about when we use the word Indigenous, where it's a politicised term. So if I unpack that a little bit, when you're inside 
a particular belief system, you don't label it that way. It's just it's just the norm. It's what you experience. It's definitely been impacted by colonization. And then spirituality can sometimes be a bit of a loaded word as well because it, for some people it, it implies an outlook that is based on religion, for example. There, there are new age spiritualities, all sorts of things. So I just want to just want to put that note at the top of this and say that as I describe my life from that indigenous spiritual perspective, to kind of distance it from any 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 ways of thinking that might be coming from elsewhere. So the spiritual side of my growing up was a combination of traditional beliefs fused with a colonial belief system, so namely Christianity. And where I was from, the missionaries carved out patches. So in my case, in the 1800s, the the Catholic missionaries were prevalent in our, our area. So all around our area, the Catholic church is quite dominant and still is today. However, the traditional beliefs were still there despite conversions. They were still very prevalent. And so as I grew up, I saw this interaction between these two belief systems in a really interesting, strange way. And I have read that this happens all over the world where missionaries come into areas, they have their own belief systems, and this fusion occurs. And so what is Catholic for Māori? It looks very different from Māori than it does for non-Māori. And it was an interesting combination of some of the traditional belief systems being embedded so seamlessly into Christianity that even today I would have trouble separating them out and being able to tell you this one belongs to the Catholics and this one belongs to our old people. So that was my upbringing. I had decided early on, I think I was around five, when I informed my parents that I was no longer going to go to Sunday school. This is in Auckland, and I'm sure it was because they needed time out for, for, from me and my siblings. <laughs> they just wanted us to head off on Sunday morning. But I re- recall that decision, which is a little bit of my personality, I think, that I had decided as I went to these children's Sunday school sessions that I wasn't believing a word of it. It wasn't connecting with me. I did like the stories I liked being around the other children, but I knew even then that it wasn't something that I could relate to. Did I know that I was relating instead to something more traditional? I think it was part of our lives and I was very conscious of it and I would comply with some of the traditional things that I was hearing, mostly around fear of doing things wrong. So so I don't think it was a very specific thing growing up it was more this is this is what I do in the circumstances without really understanding where it was coming from it does sound like a lot of your early childhood like you saw activism modeled for you and you saw being true to yourself modeled for you so it's like I can see how from a very young age you had this real sense of self-determination because that's what you saw in your family life I think I think it was around generally with Māori. There were years, there were several years where we saw a lot of activism and while I wasn't involved directly with it, I was aware of it. I was aware of some of my relations and people that I knew who had displayed courage and who had been rebellious <laughs> and who had suffered for it, who had been ostracised for it in some ways or in other times celebrated for it. So I was aware of these things, whether I was following that lead deliberately, I can't say, but certainly it was around me. And as I got a little older, so as I hit my teenage years, there were lots of conversations around activism and particularly the political space of how we would, how how our people were responding to the Treaty of Waitangi, so how we were responding to the Crown. And particularly in the 80s, we had this huge forward movement around our education system, political system, 
the recovery of land, addressing breaches of the treaty and so on, that all happened within one decade. And while I was a little too young to be directly involved and I was definitely aware of it, and some of the people involved in those times are now my heroes because they stepped outside into quite a dangerous place to do what they felt was right for their people and their grandchildren. Nice. And I... I I'm wondering if we could just change the topic a little bit because I really want to get into your book a bit. But perhaps you could start by telling us about the role of the tohunga in pre-colonial society. Sure. The um, the tohunga, I use the word sage in the book and I also use the word knowledge keeper. So the tohunga, they, they were men and, and women who held and applied knowledge at the highest levels and the highest levels of philosophy, spirituality, various areas of expertise, and I'd even venture the word magic, and all of this expertise sat inside the overall knowledge system that underpins our culture. So these were the people who were charged with ensuring that that knowledge would be passed through to the next generation. So they were they were the spiritual, moral, and intelligence compasses of their time. So they were well-respected. They were selected very, very carefully. Before the arrival of the colonialists, the methods they used to transfer knowledge was via an oral system from the tohunga to the student that demanded accuracy. And it it meant that it entailed the careful selection of future knowledge keepers to ensure that that accuracy was upheld to the highest level. It was it was an effective system. It included things like medicinal, navigational, astronomical, agricultural, seasonal, all sorts of knowledge that could be passed from generation to generation and built upon because knowledge evolves safely from one to the other and used in an appropriate manner. And the other thing that the tohunga that featured in the way that tohunga saw knowledge was it wasn't just separately material knowledge or spiritual knowledge they were both intrinsically connected so one always came with the other one always impacted the other so where western knowledge might have if you think of an encyclopedia you look up a subject and boom there it is you've got it it's not the way that the tohunga saw knowledge because not only was it that material knowledge around a subject matter but it had imbued within it a spiritual element as well so it was revered it sounds like this is already one of those parallels that both Ran and I noticed reading your book because while I obviously wasn't there thousands of years ago and it was a different culture learning about how yogic knowledge and wisdom was passed on it was very much based on an experiential process like someone couldn't just tell you this knowledge they give you a little seed and then you had to really sit with that and explore that for yourself and really experience it on a deep level before you got the next little nugget of knowledge to sit with does that feel kind of like there's a bit of a parallel there for you Oh, absolutely. I think you described that beautifully, actually. And, I, and the only thing I would add in is there's a certain amount of creativity when we're building knowledge upon knowledge and we're expanding it. There's a certain amount of imagination and creativity and contemplation that comes with it. And I, my impression of what you just said is that that sounds very similar. Yeah, that's that really struck us when we were mm. reading it. Mm. Beautiful. And speaking about creativity, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little about your book, Infinite Threads, and how it came to be. Actually, it was a very long process because I procrastinated for several years. <laughs> you sat with it for a while? <laughs> I sat with it for years. I, I think it was a combination of two things. The first one is I, I love writing. I remember publishing my first poem in one of the Sunday newspapers at probably about seven or eight years old. And I've always written for my own sense of calmness and pleasure anyway. So naturally, I'm a writer. I can write until the sky falls in with no effort whatsoever. I just love it. The other thing was I was noticing as I grew older the disconnections that were happening in my family, the negative impacts of colonization, and realizing as I 
grew older and became more educated that that impact of colonization is something that's experienced around the world so that it wasn't unique to my family or even to my tribe or even to my country. It was something that was experienced everywhere and it bothered me a lot. And I set about learning about it quite deeply, even even though my professional area is IT. And you'd think, what is the connection between the two? In my mind, there was a strong connection around the mastery, I guess, and the control of technology, not only the technology that you and I understand today, but the technology of the written word and how that played out and the negative impacts of who controlled the knowledge on my people and on others. So I was aware of this. In my 20s, I came across my great-grandfather's 15 manuscripts that had survived. They were being housed in our largest colonial museum in the country, which is here in Auckland. And as as a young woman, I learned that he was a well-respected leader in Tohunga. He had been leading the knowledge sessions through his lifetime amongst the northern tribes, so in the, in the wider region up north, and had been doing so for decades, and he was instrumental in ensuring that traditional beliefs and stories were recorded to counter the effects of conversion to Christianity and the eradication of our knowledge. So while the conversions were going on, there were a whole lot of people around the country who for around 100 years began to record the traditional knowledge. He was one of them. So the books, uh, the books contained incantations, chants, accounts and narratives, expansive genealogies, and, and a lot more. So these, this book came into my sight, and initially I thought I've, I have to, have to just, I know they're there, but I can't touch them, I can't read them, because I was brought up to understand that, that as a woman and, and as a younger person that was out of bounds for me but I did know they were I did find them and I did tell my older relations that I had discovered they were sitting here and to cut a long story short as the years started to move by I realized that some of my relations were quite upset that these books were in this museum and why they were upset and what the museum had been doing with them that uh, they'd been being shared amongst academics and others, that some had been stolen or lost, and yet the books were supposed to be secret. So while it was very controversial for a woman to be involved, by then I was far more politically aware, had a very probably sound understanding of our colonial history, and I made some decisions. And those decisions came to the point where Two of my relations and I went into the museums and we removed those books from the care of the museum. It was kind of, it was a little dramatic because they called the security guards and they were they were called in to intervene and prevent us removing these treasures. But interestingly, we knew that we were on the right side of the law, that the museum had acquired them illegally, basically. And I, and it, and it was interesting because Museums around the world are only just starting to acknowledge that they're, they are, they, they're the holders of plunder. They are the holders of artifacts that have been stolen or coerced out of the hands of their owners. And while I wasn't thinking that way the day we walked into the museum, I've, I've realised now there's always a bigger picture, right? <laughs> and so it was important for us, for my wider family, and for the museum itself to understand what this meant. But that event was a catalyst, and years followed, (laughs) again, more years, before I found the courage to actually study the manuscripts. The manuscripts were written in a very old classical te reo Māori language, and so I also had to do some learning myself even so but I was holding back because I was waiting for somebody else to come along who would work with those books and begin to share them with the family who were asking to be told about what was inside the books and for those things that they felt could be shared to have them shared so years went by and I realized after a little while that no one was coming and I was noticing that that disconnection in my family was 
getting worse, that as the years go by and the next generations and more babies were being born all over the world, that it would be much harder for them to come and reconnect again. So I started to make the decision that maybe I needed to do this work. And I remember the first time I opened the box myself and began to read what was in it. I was quite scared. Every page I thought, my gosh, a a lightning is going to strike me any minute. (laughs) Who knows what's going to happen? It was actually quite scary because I had been brought up to fear that material. And the fear manifested in a way that uh, for us growing up was something bad's going to happen to either you or someone you love. Don't go near material like that. So you, you can imagine <laughs> as the pages turn out, but I trusted certain parts. Of it. I trusted that my great-grandfather was sitting alongside me and that if I was doing the wrong thing, he would give me a nudge. That's the way I describe it. And that didn't happen. There were other things that happened, though, that moved me closer towards doing the task. And so I was very vigilant and still am about how I engage with this material. So as I turned the pages, I particularly got to a page which revealed something that I had been taught as a, as a deceit. And it was that was the strike of lightning, but in a good way that, oh my gosh, we've been lied to for such a long time. And here we are, generations down the line, lost and disconnected, and it's not necessary. And I wanted my own generation and the generation below me and and their children and so on to feel that they had the right to reconnect and how beautiful it was to come back into this world and have have this opportunity. So that's what drove me to write the book. I also discovered along the way that many of the worldviews are universal, that the knowledge that I was finding could sit alongside the worldviews of other belief systems as well. Would you mind sharing that particular insight that was that really pivotal moment for you when you realised how important it was to share this knowledge? I'm hesitating slightly. In the book, I say, I talk about this, but I say, I found mine, you find yours. (laughs) Yeah, there's that little seed. You're going to have to sit with it and uncover it for yourself. (laughs) Go and find your own. And I've had a few people respond to that in in a humorous way, saying, oh, you're so mean. You you, You should tell us. But also I've also found that people find something in there maybe one or two or three insights that really speak to them. And I think that's what's important for me is that I want them to find something that speaks to them. This one spoke to me. It was really around the idea that the restrictions that I'd grown up with and the fear that I had grown up with were unjustified. And it gave me the freedom to act straight away. As soon as I read it, I knew straight away. So powerful. And we've heard about your dilemma even reading this wisdom. As you were writing it, was it a continual process of deciding what to share and what to leave out, especially knowing it would be people from all cultures reading it? Or once you'd committed, was it more about just being really true to that source material? It was probably a combination of everything you've just said. In writing the book, I knew it was going to go out there into the world. And at that point, you have to tell yourself you've got to let it go. You've got to set that book free. (laughs) And I know that a lot of authors of books go through this little dilemma. It's It's a scary part of the process for many writers around doing that. Will I be judged? Have I exposed myself as a fool? Those kind of questions. And for me, you're right, there is an added question of, Is this material the appropriate material to put out there in the world, especially given that we, our culture tends to withhold and hide certain material for several reasons, and it's the way that our culture sees that material. So I had to take that into account definitely about what I would leave in, what I would leave out, and for the things that I would leave out, how I could still relay the key messages without exposing that detail. So part of it was around thinking about the key messages. So you'll see in parts of the book, I might only have a phrase or a sentence 
but I haven't put the whole extract and translated it for everybody. I've taken the piece that for me is able to be shared that holds that key message that I can build that interpretation of. The other thing that impacted what I left in and left out was wanting to find a wide range of subjects for the insights that would be relevant for people no matter who read it, that it would find, even if it was one insight that found a place in, in somebody's hearts or minds, something's rich and beautiful, something that really changed something for them, even if it was traumatic, that I wanted to know that I had a range of insights that covered a spectrum that hopefully anybody who reads it would find at least one, if not several, that would be something meaningful to them. With regards to non-Māori reading it, I had to use an editor. I I chose an editor who was well-travelled around the world. She had been involved in cultures of all sorts and her role for me was, will this make sense to a non-Māori reader? Will this make sense to someone who lives in another part of the world? So she was my radar and she helped me build wordsmith and build context around some of what I was saying so that it could be understood by others. And that was a really important part of the process. I didn't want to put a book out that was insular and that only spoke to myself and my own. I wanted to go wider because I wanted to show the value to our own people of this knowledge and that it could sit there amongst the other spiritual and universal knowledge out there in the world as an equal. I think that absolutely came through. There were so many passages in the book that for me, coming from a different culture, just really felt like universal human experience. And it's a, maybe it was a slightly different way of expressing that thought or that facet, but that is what I think makes your book so powerful. It's sharing this very hidden knowledge in a way that I feel like can actually benefit all humanity, everyone reading it. So thank you so much for this beautiful gift and for the courage that you took to go on the journey that you did and share this knowledge. Hello, Ran here to talk about our Patreon page. Patreon is just a way that you can help support the podcast for as little as $1 US a month. Higher tiers get access to extra special content as well as a listing on our website and a shout out on the podcast. If you'd like to support us with a small monthly donation, just go to patreon.com slash flowartistpodcast and join the fun. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can share this episode on social media, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or just reach out and let us know your thoughts on this or anything else. All right, let's get back to our conversation with Mariko. I also was wondering, as you were writing it, it sounds like you very much had a dual readership in mind, so Māori and also people through the rest of the world. Did you find yourself code switching somewhat as you were writing or did you find that it all just flowed and then it was more the editing process when you went back over things and kind of took another look? I'm not sure actually I haven't thought about it I think possibly it had more of a fluid flowing kind of a process I was initially I was my own audience I was just writing for myself so I I didn't have any audience in mind except myself I started sharing it on Facebook on my personal page and received so much interaction with it and was kind of encouraged by that to share a little more and eventually created a separate page which quickly filled up with members and I was feeling quite overwhelmed by that but I but nevertheless I kept writing and I was very very interested in who was responding and where they were coming from so while the majority were New Zealanders and Māori several of them were not Māori and several of them came from overseas so I began to realize that the audience for this was people that I weren't even familiar with but because the conversations were happening on Facebook I was able to experience their perspectives. This is a, this was in the days when Facebook didn't limit the reach. So I was getting 
a huge amount of interaction for every insight. You don't get that now. They want you to pay for it and boost it. But <laughs> but I'm glad that I put it out there. This is back in 2013. So I became aware that there were different audiences and that their understanding of the insights needed to be honed, that the way I was writing as an insider, maybe I needed to look a little wider and make sure that my communication of a concept or an idea was being received in the way that I had meant it to, but allowing for enough space for people to uh, challenge it, to discuss it, to come up with their own ideas around it. And it was, in a way, it was like the old knowledge sessions that were held in my great-grandfather's era where some of that discussion would happen. So I was quite invigorated by that kind of interaction. So when I got to the book, I did have to rewrite all of the insights that I had originally written to take into account that the audience was going to be international. But at the same time, I left several threads all through the book for my Māori audience who were well connected to their cultural cultural knowing, I guess, and that they would see the depth and the nuances that were in the writing as well and that they would see a little more and they would see that I had honoured the fact that I knew they were going to read it. It was almost like insider messages to them as well. And I wanted to make sure that the book served them just as well as it served anyone else. And I I had this little phrase in the back of my head, don't dumb it down. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So that, that was quite a challenge to write in a way that catered to both. But it was fluid in the sense that I wrote I didn't have to go over over things many times to make sure the second audience was what I was writing with both in mind all the way through, but I did have to refine and hone it. Beautiful. And as we mentioned before, perhaps before we were in conversation, some of what you write about, it really sort of, I guess, summons images of, of a mindfulness practice or a yogic philosophy and I'd like to read an extract from the book you say in a state of te kore the great nothingness there's an infinite emptiness where knowing is anticipated in a state of te po the unfathomable darkness knowing is conceived and takes form in a state of te ao marama the bright light of comprehension knowing appears in fullness in one moment the tohunga her eyes closed in contemplation may sense nothing in the next, a, full, a small feather may drift silently by. The tohunga will suddenly raise her hand and pluck it from the air. Kapo wairua, eyes still closed. And to me, that really, I guess, feels like a metaphor for mindfulness. Is, was that, I guess you said it wasn't intentional, but is that describing a, a practice for you? I think it describes the practice of the tohunga. And for those of us who, it is a metaphor, and I, how you're describing mindfulness, I think it, it's a fit, although mindfulness isn't my area, my specialty. It sounds like it is. And then today, I think I think that's exactly the process I use to write these insights. So it, it's a, as I said before, I think, Joe, you asked a question. I talked about that contemplation and pondering and you know, imagination and those kinds of things. We, as Westerners, we use, and, and as IT people as well, Ran, we use this system of acquiring and building knowledge which doesn't contain that spiritual or that, that fluidity about it, although quite often there's, there's creativity. But I would pull the creative side over to this mindfulness that I think you're describing, and for that extract, it would fit perfectly in there. I think without that process, I don't think these insights would have been written. I don't think the book would have been written. That's beautiful. And I'd I'd like to read another part as well. Let us unmask ourselves and let go our fantasies. Then we are open to accept other fantasies, whether or not we are cast in the role of hero. Who are we when we are not laden? When we find the answer, perhaps we will decide to plug ourselves back into the grid to ira tangata, the infinite thread that connects us all to us all. And 
Yeah, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, for me that really struck a parallel with this idea of when we have all of these preconceived about ideas about ourselves and about who we should be and what we should be doing in the world, it actually takes us further away from this opportunity to explore more deeply into who we truly are and also our connection to all other living beings. Yeah, you've you've absolutely nailed it, Joe. And this, I think, is the central theme of the whole book. It's about connectivity. So if we, uh, that, that particular insight starts, if I recall correctly, with describing the material. Yes. The materialistic side and precious that we fall under in, in modern society, the expectations that we clothe ourselves, I guess, and the expectations of society, which means that we have to achieve certain things, and if we don't, we're failures, if we if we do, we're successes, and all of these things that humans like to do in order to be accepted and in order to survive in some cases. But I wanted to strip all of that off and talk about what was underneath that. And I know some of the scientists would probably like this when we talk about we are dust particles. So it's heading in that direction. It's it's saying that when we strip everything off, we are dust particles. We're the same as everything else. We're connected to everything else. We're identical. And, and it's a very minute form. This is what we are. And we don't have these layers of things that we've put upon ourselves, these pressures that we've put upon ourselves. So the question then is, who are we? And how are we connected to everything else? And it calls, it's a challenge. It calls for people to recognize that they are connected, that if you strip off all those things, that we're all the same. We're all part of that same, what I call the infinite thread, uh, which obviously is how the book came to be named, that we're all connected. When you shake that thread, the thread shakes and vibrates along to everybody and everything else on that thread. Our impact has an impact of everybody. Our negative impact has a negative impact and our positive has a positive impact as well on everything and everybody else. So I wanted to strip it right back to that and challenge people to think about everything they do, every decision they make, everything they get sucked into doing, everything they believe every part of how they behave with each other and how they behave with the environment and how they behave with the universe has an impact. And how powerful that this has come from your own culture and we've found a parallel in Asian culture and it's feeling so like never more real and truly important to understand this like in the culture that I'm living in now in Melbourne. It's I think it just is that universal wisdom and to be able to uncover another facet of that in your work and in your sharing, I think it's a really, it was a really beautiful moment for us reading it. And it's also been so interesting to hear how much technology was a part of this process. I never imagined that a Facebook discussion would have shaped the journey <laughs> of this book. And like you've kind of mentioned before how you and Ran both work in IT. I'd just like to explore that a little bit more, like that kind of interesting connection between technology and spirituality and how writing code, you put these little pieces together to create this greater whole. So I might have just gone off on a real tangent here, but I'm pretty fascinated by the writing process and your other work and if you felt parallels as you were doing it, if maybe you dropped into the same state of mind. It's really interesting how those two come together, I think. And I I know that when I've had comments from other people, they cannot fathom how on earth I could be doing IT and then writing this kind of thing. It just it's an it's a non it doesn't fit. But in my mind it does. And I think the key word is creativity as one of the openings towards joining the two together. So I don't write code anymore. More recently my work has focused around Māori IT projects, which means there's a strong social and cultural and political uh, element to all of those projects, which means that I'm already embedded in my IT work in a Māori context. So to me, it's joined up already. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. So so that, that wasn't, 
a kind of thing that I had to kind of pull together randomly. The IT side of it, though, causes you to draw upon certain skill sets, which may or may not exist in other fields. And they're, they're things like logic. I talk about triangulation, check, fact-checking, and making sure that the meticulous uh, when you write code, you have to be meticulous. You cannot put a a semicolon or a space in the wrong place, otherwise everything falls over. So those kind of detailed, meticulous skill sets I did use for my process of study for this material and for this book. Part of it, where it was useful was in unpacking and going back to source from some of the material that I that I know had been published over decades that I felt might be inaccurate or had come from a particular bias and I wanted to unpack it all I wanted to take the bias out um, to take inaccuracies out and I wanted proof I wanted to see the evidence <laughs> and so that definitely was my IT side and I and I do capture that in the there is an insight that talks about triangulation that, that says, yes, it's okay to sit there in the space of te kore and te po, which Ran, you mentioned just a little while ago around that process of knowledge acquisition, gathering, growing, evol- evolution. I guess that's a very creative spiritual space that you talked about. But I wanted to add the more logical and rational and evidence-based thinking into it as well because I was aware that so much misinformation had been shared. So I used my IT skills, I guess, put them next to the other parts of, of how I studied and learned and portrayed the information, put them together. And I said to myself, if one does not support the other, then it's an anomaly. If it's an anomaly, it's either true and amazing or it's false. So you can you can probably hear my IT background and the way I'm talking. <laughs> I, I think in the book you also mentioned something about the sage or tohunga, uh, there, there being a very rigorous standard of information transferal and, and storage as well. So I, I wonder if that that in some sense you you are modern sage in, in the IT realm. Um, I think. We are who we are and we bring our experiences to everything we do. But you're absolutely right to bring that up about the the expectation of accuracy was extremely high. Otherwise, the knowledge base from which our cultural foundation was built would be very poor. And my belief is that there is no culture in this world, no belief system in this world that is based on such poor transmission, (laughs) that it is all hugely rich and utterly beautiful, no matter where it comes from. And so accuracy in an oral system is very important. The ability to learn by rote, the genealogies, I'm sure that the Māori people have the, the most expensive genealogies in the world. I haven't yet come across a culture that puts together all of these names and then then the orators pull it out like nothing and just and just recite them because it's the normal and that accuracy is highly important but over over several decades there are examples where that accuracy has been undermined and so therefore it felt right to me to go back to how i understand accuracy can be maintained and so i drew upon my it side to say there cannot be one error I have to triple check everything I do, but I also have to go to my sources and I have to triple check everything they did. And interestingly, I found several mistakes and errors or deliberate manipulations in some of the work that I was looking at. I guess I would actually like to come back to this activism that we talked about earlier. I'm just wondering, and this could just be me sort of I guess, trying to pull out patterns. But do do you feel that there is this, I guess, undercurrent of activism in your writing and this promotion of of this, I guess, badly named Indigenous spirituality? Yes, I do. And I think that probably comes out in the book strongly in some areas, particularly in the first part of the book, I provide a historical narrative. I don't do it in an academic way deliberately. I wanted to be able to tell it as a story 
and to talk about the experiences of our people or the people that I I've been around and how that's played out. So I tell it as a narrative. Definitely, there's activism and there's a political layer sitting there, but behind that, I have another purpose, and that purpose was to try and create rebalance. That we have our stories have been told by others. It's time for us to tell our own stories. That our some of our stories have been told inaccurately or in a shallow way, and I wanted to tell the stories in a deeper way. And also there was the aspect of men and women. So I do spend a little bit of time rebalancing that as well, which is not just about men and women and how that plays out in life, but also there's a somewhat political element to that as well, because our colonization was very much a patriarchal system that was overlaid over the top. So all of those things for me could be, just revealed, uh, challenged, and I strive by the end of the book, I strive towards a rebalancing. And so by the time you get to the last page, I hope that the reader feels that that rebalance has happened, particularly for people who may have been on the sharp end of the impact of colonization, that they feel a that there's more strength, that there's more something they can grasp onto that is meaningful for them. And so, yes, you're right, there was a political layer through the book. Sometimes it comes through some of the insights and sometimes it's not there at all. And I've seen an overwhelmingly positive response to your book on Amazon. How's the response been in general? I think I'm just absolutely wrapped with the Amazon responses because they're international readers. I think there was one New Zealander because she got hold of me personally to tell me how she felt about the book, but the rest, I think, were international. So I'm absolutely wrapped that they got something from the book because that was a goal to reach out to that group. Interestingly, I've had several readers who are Māori readers who don't meet the threshold of being able to leave a review on Amazon because they haven't spent enough money on Amazon to leave one, but have but have overwhelmingly preferred preferred to have the hard copy book directly from me so I've been distributing the book in New Zealand from a website so that does these ones these readers don't go through Amazon the readers in Amazon have come from the perspective of international readers it's been just so wonderful reading their reviews and some of the New Zealanders from the book that I've been distributing here and also some in Australia have contacted me privately to give me their thoughts and they're they're very similar generally it's around the idea of there's a historical perspective and a cultural perspective and then secondly there's an insights perspective and usually they'll tell me about an insight in particular that was quite meaningful to them the Māori readers have been a different group and their feedback has been really interesting because I layered the contents of the books and so some of them would have realised that there was another, I think you called it a code, Joe, where I'm kind of speaking to them in a, in a deeper way. So they've picked up on that. Some say it's changed their life, that it's such a contrast to what they were brought up with, that it's lifted our culture above the level of just rules and restrictions and it's become more expansive and meaningful to them and they're quite excited by that and I hope that in that excitement they start to challenge and debate and grow what it means to be Māori here today in 2020 and how we can draw from our traditional thinking and bring it into our lives today in a way that's really important especially in a world that's so troubled right now and then I've also had several women my readers have become increasingly female for some reason in the last month <laughs> <laughs> and I, I didn't target it that way but now I now I'm realizing actually there's there's something that Māori women just like me have needed and it hasn't been there for them our, our current current cultural practices have been impacted by colonial thinking and it's not serving women well it's not serving them in terms of the leadership 
the visibility, the restrictions that we're facing in our cultural context. And it's and I and I tried very hard not to turn it into a patriarchal versus matriarchal battle. I wanted instead to rebalance, but I did have to during the book speak to the men separately and speak to the women separately, but with a goal to rebalance. And so the responses from women have been from my point of view, quite exciting, that the stories have been challenged and re- resurrected and retold in a way that seeks to put women firmly back into this picture. And so that's the, that's the kind of feedback I've had so far. Those are the themes that are coming through at the moment. And so with this response that you're getting about the impact this is already having on how people see themselves and how they're going to live from here, does the book feel like a seed that you plant and then people will grow in their own way? Or does it feel like the beginning of a longer project of more writing and maybe more books in the future or another way to continue to explore these materials? I think both. I think the goal of the book was to present something that would encourage the conversations and encourage the wānanga, the knowledge sessions with people. And I have heard some say that they've taken the book as a family and then sat down and taken an insight and then they've really discussed it. What does that mean to them? Do they agree? Do they disagree? What can they build from that? So I've I wanted that to happen. And then is it a one-off project? Is it the beginning of something more? I'm still thinking about that. There is a a book that I wrote before this one, which was the backstory, and then decided to pivot to this one, but lead at the end of the the very end of this book, it leads into what could be the second book. So I'm kind of still in that space of trying to decide whether which direction to head. I mean, you just dropped a couple of fascinating hints at the backstory of this book, like (laughs) the trip to the museum and... (laughs) What happened there? That's that's that was in the original book, so that if that could, would potentially be in the second book. And the other thing that is in the second book, this, keeping in mind it's still very much a draft, was the idea of the old man and his shape shifting, and what that that what that was. So there's this magical side, I guess. But anyway, I'm still working that through. <laughs> Any suggestions? Most welcome. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, I, I, whatever it is, I hope you do continue to write more beautiful pieces like uh, your your current book. I, I just know personally, as a as a Maori who is probably a little bit disconnected from his own culture, I, I found it really inspiring and beautiful. It's a marvelous read, and I think I also, you know, the Maori side of my family was very heavily Catholic, so I feel like that part of the culture was quite confusing for me especially because on my father's side like very very much atheist so (laughs) (laughs) so that that led to a bit of confusion for me growing up so this this book actually it I guess not so much answered questions but I guess (laughs) created more for me so it's definitely oh I'm pleased to hear that Ron (laughs) yeah it's, it's a beautiful place to explore from so thank you thank you very very much for writing this book and I guess we do have one more question. It's our surprise question that we ask oh, everybody. Okay. <laughs> so, and this might be challenging, but if you could distill everything that you have learned and everything that you teach and share down to one core essence, what do you think that one thing would be? The first thing that popped into my head was I, I learned to put something behind, beside me as I've walked through this journey, particularly as I started to get active in it. And I remind myself from time to time and that uh, when I started, I feared judgment, I feared not belonging, offending people I care about. And then I discovered that the opposite of fear is freedom. And so that phrase, the opposite of fear of freed is freedom, is what has underpinned all of the work to date and will keep me going forward. Beautiful. That's such a powerful insight to leave our listeners with. Thank you so much for everything that you've shared in the book and everything that you've shared today. It's been a really fascinating conversation for me. Thank you. Thank you for thank you for the opportunity to share what I've been doing with your listeners. Thank you.
All right, I hope you enjoyed our interview with Marikor. When she mentioned taking the manuscripts from the museum, honestly, my jaw dropped. I wanted to dig in a little bit more there, but sometimes the conversation just takes its own path. Anyway, it's an amazing book. I definitely recommend it, and I'll leave a link in the show notes. Our next episode is a conversation with Anna Forrest and Jose Calaco. It's a great conversation where we cover topics ranging from physical adjustments, incorporating indigenous knowledge into a yoga practice, and we ended up talking about garlic and onions a lot as well. So look out for that in two weeks' time. Our theme song is Baby Robots by GoSoul and is used with permission. Get his music from gosoul.bandcamp.com. Joe and I would like to honour the elders of these wisdom traditions of yoga and mindfulness from India and Asia. We also wish to honour the traditional custodians of the unceded land where this podcast is recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Thank you so much for listening. Joe and I really appreciate you spending your time with us. Aroha nui. Big, big love.